in Matthew 24 and 25, Jesus is answering a question that was posed to him by his disciples. At verse 3 of Matthew 24, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Seems like everywhere I go these days, people are talking about the return of Jesus, the rapture of the church, and it's an appropriate topic of conversation because many, many signs are falling into place in our world for the imminent return of Jesus, the bridegroom, to take home his bride, the church. I personally believe that in chapters 24 and 25 of Matthew's gospel, Jesus is teaching uh, on what things will be like after the rapture. During the seven years, the Bible calls the seven years of tribulation, the great tribulation, after which Jesus will come again. He will bring the church and his angels with him. He'll set up his kingdom on earth in the city of Jerusalem, and then he will reign on earth for a period of a thousand years. Nevertheless, in chapter 25, what Jesus is specifically telling us is how to be ready for his coming, whether it's at the rapture of the church or at his coming seven years later. Did you know that there will be many who will come to faith in Jesus Christ during the tribulation period? The vast majority of them will be Jews who will recognize at last that Jesus is their Messiah and will trust in him by faith as their Savior. The question that you and I need to answer is not whether or not we will be ready when he comes. I'm sorry, let me rephrase that. The question you and I need to answer is whether or not we will be ready when he comes. To answer the questions in 24 verse 3, in what follows, Jesus gave his disciples some insights into the end of the age the tribulation period, and the signs that will precede his second coming. What I want to assure you of this morning is that you want to be ready at the rapture so that you don't have to endure the difficulties and horrors that the Bible says will come upon the whole earth during the great tribulation. You want to be ready today. He wraps up chapter 24 by saying you must be ready. So what does it mean to be ready for his coming? First and most basically, it means to have recognized Jesus Christ as God and Lord, to have repented of your sin, and to have trusted in him as your personal Savior. What does trusting in him mean? It means transferring your trust from everything else that you've leaned on and trusted in and hoped would justify you before God to what Jesus Christ accomplished for you through his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. See, on the cross, Jesus died in your place as your substitute. That's what it means when we say Jesus died in your place, that he stood in for you. He hung on the cross for you. He bore your sins. He took your judgment, absorbed the entirety of God's wrath toward your sin. He satisfied forever the the debt of your sin. And God didn't wait for you to shape up to to meet his righteous demands. He knew you couldn't. He loved you so much that he sent his own son, Jesus Christ, while you were a sinner, while you were 
helpless in your sin, to die in your place. The Bible says that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. So that we, the unrighteous, we, the unworthy, we, the undeserving, might receive his righteousness as a free gift of his love, his mercy, and his grace. So that when you put your trust in Christ's accomplishment at the cross on your behalf, God forgives your sin and adopts you into his family. But we know that Jesus didn't stay dead. He, he rose again on the third day as he said he would. He, he ascended into heaven 40 days later, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, and from there he's coming again. In chapter 25 then of Matthew, Jesus gives us three parables that give us insights from differing angles on what it means to be ready when he comes. Well, what's a parable? I can tell you it's not two oxen yoked together pulling a wagon. That's, that's just a pair of bulls. A parable is, is a story that, that's really taken from, from everyday events, everyday circumstances, that's taught to illustrate spiritual realities, to convey spiritual insights. Jesus often taught in parables. And this is one of those occasions. So in chapter 25, those first three, or those three parables, the, the message of the first parable in verses 1 to 13, we could title, Don't Miss the Party. Don't Miss the Party. Second, which we read, or which we're going to read in a moment, could be, Don't Waste Your Life. And the third, in verses 31 to 46, can be summarized as, Don't Overlook Jesus. Don't Overlook Jesus. This morning, I'd like us to take a look together at the second parable, which has been labeled the parable of the talents. It's the one about not wasting your life. And if you're able, will you please stand with me and let's read it together. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had the two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, 
And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is God's word. You may be seated. I'd like to share with you six simple observations that, that flow out of this parable. And here's, here's the first, that everything you are and have, you received from the master. Everything you are, everything you have, you received from the master. Check out verse 14, for it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. For it will be like. What is it in verse 14? It is the kingdom of heaven. Look back at verse 1 of chapter 25. If you have your Bible open, then the kingdom of heaven will be like. He's talking about the kingdom. Whose servants did he call? He called his servants, his douloi, his slaves. They were his. Whose property did this man entrust to his servants? Someone else's? No, he entrusted his property to them. It was his property that each of them received as a stewardship to manage while he was away on a journey. wonder if you understand this morning that everything you are and everything you have, you received from the master. Everything, everything. What you think you own is actually on loan. In his letter to the believers in the city of Corinth, the Apostle Paul asked, What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Sitting out on my deck yesterday morning just before the heat kind of arrived and and thinking about all of this and and I looked at the table in front of me. I said, Lord, this is your table. And there's the umbrella over the table. Lord, this is your umbrella and the, the deck and the railing on the deck. Lord, this is, this is your deck. That's your railing. And, and the clothes I was wearing said, Lord, these are your clothes. You should dress a little better, but these are your clothes. And the food that was I was eating and the, the coffee that I was drinking, I said, Lord, it's yours. You, you gave it to me. It's yours. King David expressed this eloquently in his passionate prayer in First Chronicles 29 on the occasion when he and the elders of Israel and all the people had been, had given. They'd given generously. They'd given lavishly, even opulently and sacrificially to be sure to God for the construction of the first temple in Jerusalem. Listen to what he says. David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. But who am I, and what is my people that we should be able thus to offer willingly? For all things come from you, 
and of your own have we given you. Fourteen times in just five verses, David addresses God using the words you and yours. You see, David clearly understood this principle. He was he was overwhelmed by it that everything that we are and everything that we have has come from God. And what we might be tempted to think we have earned or we have somehow created and therefore think we own is really just on loan from him. God has entrusted all of it to us. He regards us not as owners but as servants, as his stewards, his managers, and on that basis we are accountable to God for effective management, for faithful stewardship of all that he entrusts to our care. Second observation. God entrusts you with resources according to your ability. Notice verse 15. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. And then he went away. Let me just make clear right up front what a, what a talent is not in this passage. In this parable, a talent is not what we think of as a talent. It's not a natural ability. The word actually comes from this word in in Matthew 25, but it's not a natural ability in Matthew 25. It's it's not like your uncanny, uncanny ability to can the crunchiest pickles in the county or your daughter's genius at gymnastics or your son's crazy cast capacities on the keyboard. Not those things. The talent in first century Israel was a measure of weight. Approximately 75 pounds, whether of gold or silver, that was used for buying and selling. And I went online because I kind of wondered, you know, what, what would a first century talent of gold be worth today? It's always kind of entertaining to, to do that. Um, the results of my search were all over the map, anywhere from $350,000 to over $2 million. So let's just use the generic gazillion, shall we? A talent is worth a gazillion dollars. It's a chunk of money, no matter how you measure it. But notice with me that the man gave his servants, and by the way, instead of talents, you can just plug in bag of gold, okay? Bag of gold, or bag of silver, or bag of wealth. Notice with me that the man gave his servants unequal amounts, To the first he gave five, to the second two, and to the third he gave one. Why? Jesus said that the determination was made on the basis of the master's personal assessment of each one's unique ability. You might say he didn't give each one more or less than he knew that he could handle. Now, if you're a parent, you you know ahead of time that what you're going to hear from your kids uh, when they think you've treated them unequally, right? Well, how come he got a large French fry, and I just got a small. How come he got more of this or more of that? It's not fair. Mom! You've heard it. You're going to hear whining and complaining, right? See, one of the killers of contentment in life is the snare of comparison, isn't it? We might look around and ask, why don't I have as much fill-in-the-blank as as that person, or why did they get more fill-in-the-blank than I? Why does he or she get to live that life while I'm here living my crummy little life? Why did she get to marry that guy, or why did he get to marry that woman? Why does he get to drive that car, or fly that plane, or drive that boat? 
live in that neighborhood, in that house. Anytime we start playing the comparison game, comparing ourselves to others, it has the potential to cripple us. It's usually a lose-lose proposition, and we can begin to feel that not only is life unfair generally, it is, but that God has been unfair specifically to us. He hasn't. On the the flip side, if we happen to have been entrusted with more than others, we might develop a puffed-up sense of superiority, of exalted status that leads to inappropriate pride. We all do it at some level, don't we? Someone told me between services that he had talked with a guy that was uber-wealthy, and he said, all money does for you is allows you to be miserable in a really, really nice neighborhood. We even compare what, what we know about ourselves with what we do not know and cannot know about others. And, and we make assumptions and presumptions. As, as someone once put it, we compare our B-movie with their highlight reel. And we allow the comparison, whether for good or for bad, to define for us who we are and how valuable we are, even to God. But the truth to which we need to return, if we're going to think clearly and live faithfully, is that that it's not about us. It's all his anyway. It's all about him, the God who loves us with an everlasting love, who who knows us infinitely better than we will ever know ourselves, who values us so highly that he sent his son to die for us, to redeem us for himself, has allowed each of us, according to his sovereign will and purpose for us, to receive what he knows we can handle. And we are to steward that on his behalf. And then Jesus says the man went away on his journey. In verses 16 to 17, we see that faith, faith produces timely investment. He who had received the five talents went at once, notice that, at once, and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. When did he go and trade with the talents entrusted to him? At once. He didn't hesitate. He didn't procrastinate. Delayed obedience is disobedience. He had no idea when the master would return. He wanted to be found faithful. So he was proactive about investing his master's money. So also Jesus said the one who had the two talents, neither of them, neither of them, let any grass grow. They didn't know if he's going to Tokyo or Tenino. So, so they didn't know how much time they had or when the master would reappear. Faith produces timely investment. But check it out at verse 18. Fear produces paralysis. Fear produces paralysis. How many of you know that the opposite of faith is not doubt? It's not doubt. Doubt is belief or faith just in need of more information. Doubt is a cognitive issue. The opposite of faith is not doubt, it's fear. And in this case, that's a relational issue. Here's where we realize that thing three had a different relationship with the master than thing one and thing two. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. 
You say, what? What? Why? Why did this third servant act in a way that was in such stark contrast with the first two? The answer is one word, fear. Verse 25 says that he was motivated by fear. And when he was called to account by the master when he returned, he explained, I was afraid. And so I went and hid your talent in the ground. It raises a question, doesn't it? Three servants, one master, two of them had a quality of relationship with the master that was not shared or experienced by the third. Thing one and thing two had a trusting relationship. Thing three had a fear-based relationship with, with the master. Faith produces action. Fear produces paralysis. But the next thing we learn is that the master rewards faithfulness. Faithfulness. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. He had been gone a long time. He he had not only entrusted them with his money, but check it out, he had also given them the resource of time in which to invest those resources. And now it was time to settle accounts. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I've made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Did you see it? The the first two servants each delivered up to their master a return on investment that was was proportional to what they had initially received. And each of them, in turn, received the identical blessing. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. See, the master didn't say, well done, good-intentioned servant. Neither did he say, well done, good and fruitful servant. What he affirmed was their faithfulness. Their faithfulness. It was their faithfulness that led to their fruitfulness. But he focused his affirmation on their faithfulness. Make no mistake, God God wants us to be fruitful. He wants you to be fruitful in your life. Jesus once said to his disciples, By this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. But see, you don't get to fruitfulness by focusing, fixating on fruit bearing. Fruitfulness is the product of faithfulness, of consistently and obediently abiding in Christ until he comes. In fact, in that same scripture in John 10, he talks about, pictures himself as a vine and his disciples as the branches. I am the vine, you are the branches. And he says, just abide in me. Abide in me and you'll bear much fruit. Hang in there. Connect yourself to me. 
and be faithful. What was their reward? Affirmation. Promotion to a higher level of responsibility and authority in the kingdom. Best of all, the joy of the master and the greatest reward, the greatest reward for faithfulness is the master himself. Pick it up at 24. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then, then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So this third servant steps forward. He, I picture him wiping the, the dirt off the, the chest that he had buried his talent in and handing it to the master. And I, I think he probably looked down at the ground, didn't make direct eye contact, and mumbled, well, here, here's what's yours. I didn't use it, but I didn't lose it. Listen now to what the master did not say in response. He did not say, well done, good and faithful servant. He didn't even give him a participation trophy. Instead, he uses three words to describe him. Wicked, slothful, and worthless. Nice, huh? Wicked, slothful, and worthless. Let's, let's just look quickly at those three words where, where good means inherently good, good through and through in a moral sense. Wicked is the direct opposite. To be slothful is the direct opposite of being faithful. It means to drag your feet, to be reluctant, to never quite be available, never be ready for action. And by the designation worthless, the master is saying that this servant is unfaithful, unfaithful and therefore unprofitable, unfruitful. The one talent is taken away from the worthless servant, is given to the first servant who, who then has 11 talents instead of 10 and, and who has the blessing of the master and the worthless servant is cast into the outer darkness where it says there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And I just want to pause here and clarify what Jesus is saying at the conclusion of this parable so that there's no confusion. One could read this parable and conclude that the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth is a description of hell or eternal separation from God. So that what Jesus would be saying in this parable is that we are saved by our works and not by God's grace. So here are three important truths in that regard. First of all, all three of the servants in the parable belong 
to the master. They are part of his household. By analogy, members of the household of God. We would say today, all three were Christians. Second, the expression in verse 30, the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth is in fact a Hebraic expression, a Hebrew expression that generically means a place or a condition of deep regret and remorse. And while it's a very extreme description that in some places in the New Testament is applied to hell and which we should take very, very seriously, it does not necessarily describe eternal separation from God. And I don't believe we should understand it in that way here. Why? Because third, Jesus did not teach that it is our works that save us. The consistent message of Jesus and the apostles is that each of us is saved by the grace of God alone, through personal faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. I also want you to understand that it's not guaranteed, it is not guaranteed that on the day of judgment, God will say to every single Christian, well done, good and faithful servant. We, we, that statement is only found in this parable in all of the New Testament, and yet we, we tend to generalize it so that we believe that every person, every Christian who passes through the proverbial pearly gates, Jesus will say to them, well done, good and faithful servant. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible does say that we who have believed in Jesus Christ will face judgment, but not, but not for our sin. Why is that? It's because Jesus Christ has already been judged for us. He bore our sins in his own body at the cross. He was condemned to die. He absorbed the full wrath of God toward our sin. And just before he died, just before he gave up his spirit, he said, it is finished. Because of the cross, the salvation that God offers to humanity is free, it is full, it is final. What will be the basis then of our judgment? The Bible says that Christians will stand before the judgment seat of God and be rewarded on the basis of what we have done in the positive sense. What we, the return that we have brought on the investment that God placed in us. Listen to what the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, chapter 3, beginning at verse 11. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest For the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as 
through fire. When I was a young man, I worked in an aluminum foundry, and I I worked in what I was the closest experience I hope to ever have to hell, because there was we did sand casting, and there was dust, there was sand swirling in the foundry, and and wear these thick goggles and wear these heavy, heavy, thick gloves and, and dip molten aluminum from a crucible and pour it into, into molds. I hated that job. <laughs> now, this, this, this is going to be a, a little bit of what hell's going to be like. See, the day of judgment for believers will be a day when you'll bring what you have done with what God has entrusted you, and you're going to drop it into that burning crucible. And it will be tested by fire. We're not talking now about the lake of fire. We're, we're, we're talking about the refiner's fire. And at that moment, all of your huff and all of your fluff and all of your other stuff will be burnt away, and what's left will be the basis of your heavenly reward. Paul is saying quite honestly that for some, after the test of fire, there will be nothing left. We'll be saved, Paul says, but only as through fire. In other words, we'll go to heaven, but we'll arrive smelling like hell. See, everything you do in this life will result in either regret or reward. Please don't waste your life. Please don't waste your life. Don't don't waste your money. Don't waste your time. Don't waste your relationships. Don't waste your moments. Don't waste your opportunities. It's all too easy to get busy doing stuff, even religious stuff, churchy stuff, that really doesn't move the dial on the kingdom of God. And one of the sins of American Christianity is that we are so preoccupied with pursuing the comfortable that we allow ourselves to avoid the faithful. Please don't let that describe you. There is a work for which God created you, for which Christ saved you, and to which the Holy Spirit is calling you. When I was in middle school, I was at a Christian camp. It's right at that age where you start thinking, begin to think of yourself as an individual. And think, kind of deal, dealing with your own identity and your own future and what your life is supposed to be all about. By the way, people should work with middle school kids. Crit, crit, critical moment. But this was back in a time when, it, when one of the things that Christians did was to choose a life verse. And, and so I thought, well, I better get one. And, and it was at this camp where... I was uh, in a workshop called Discovering God's Will for Your Life. And another thing that was big back then was the Living Bible. It was kind of new back then. And so I memorized what became my life verse from the Living Bible in Philippians 3.12. And in the Living Bible, this is the way it sounds. It says, I don't mean to say I'm perfect. I haven't learned all that I should even yet, but I keep working towards that day when I will finally be all that Christ saved me for and wants me to be. And it was that week at that camp that I, that I came to realize that there was a person that God had in mind when he created me. And, and for me to become that person would require that I was living in a close relationship with him. 
Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 to 10, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Verse 10 is actually the, the theme verse for this week's kids camp. But God has prepared in advance the things he wants you to do with your life. Long before you were born, in eternity past, God thought of you. And he prepared things that for you to do uniquely in the time he gave you. He set the stage. He's provided you with every resource you need to accomplish everything he has purposed for you to do, including the time in which to do it. What you think you own is actually just on loan. Are you being faithful with what you have been given and the time that you've been given? The master will return soon. Time is running out. So while you still have time, if if you resemble thing three more than you resemble thing one and two, then grab a shovel and go back to that place, wherever it was that you buried what God entrusted to you, dig it up and risk it all by investing it for his kingdom. Somewhere along the line this morning, you thought to yourself, I thought we were studying the book of Acts. And we are. And there's a reason that I paused here and took a look at the parable of the talents. So as I close, let's go back to where we were last week in chapter 13. You remember Paul, or Barnabas and Saul are in the church in Antioch. And, and they're teaching there during a period of a year. And while they were worshiping, it says the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. See, Barney and Saul are faithfully invested in a very effective, very fruitful ministry in the church at Antioch. But God had more plans for them. He had a, another direction he wanted them to go. And so what he's saying to them is, take those two guys off your church staff because I'm going to send them somewhere else. So here's where we want to wrap this up today. Some of you have no idea how God has wired you to serve him. We'd like to help you figure that out. Others of you are serving in exactly the place that you know God has gifted you to serve, and we want to bless you to keep serving there. But still others of you are serving faithfully, but you may sense that that God has something different that he wants you to be doing. And maybe you said yes to, to one of us pastors or ministry leaders because you wanted to be, you wanted to make a difference, you wanted to help. But but you know in your heart of hearts that, that God has got something different for you to do, and you may not even be sure yet what it is. If that's the case, then then what we want to do is to set you apart, to 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 fire you from the church staff, as it were, and, and rehire you in a different area for the work that God has called you to do. 
And you know what? May not even be a classic church ministry. It may be something God's calling you to do that we have never even thought of yet. Jesus is building his church. He's building LifePoint Church. I believe there's more God wants wants us to do than we've even thought of. So there may be a ministry that God is calling you to and that he's showing you something that he wants you to do. And we want to set you apart for that and bless you for that. We're blessing you and releasing you to that work. Verse 3 of chapter 13 of Acts, Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Any Karate Kid fans here? Come on. You can admit it. It's a safe, it's a safe audience. You remember, wax on, wax off. Wax on, wax off. Here in Acts 13, it's hands on, hands off. Hands on, hands off. They, they laid their hands on Saul and Barnabas. And then it says they sent them off. But the Greek phrase that we find there literally means they took their hands off. They released them. They just released them. Hands on, blessing, identification, prayer, partnership, but hands off. You go now where God is calling you to go. In your program this morning is this handout. At the top it says, Serving is a great way to get plugged into LifePoint, feel like a part of a community, and serve Jesus at the same time. God has uniquely equipped every person in the church with specific skills, passions, gifts. As Christians, we're tasked with utilizing these gifts in our community and within our local church. Check the boxes of areas you're interested in serving. If you have an area where you'd like to serve but don't see it listed, write it on the other line. That's on the back at the bottom. One of the things I hate about these lists, honestly, is that sometimes what is becomes a straitjacket that prevents us from doing what God wants to see happen. And so it may be that that you'll look at this and you'll see, man, that's where I need to be serving. Right there. It's there. It may be that you look at this and you say, I don't really see anywhere on this list where I think God is calling me to serve or how he's calling me to serve. And we want to know about that. And we, we want to pray with you about that. We want to hear your vision for that. We, we want to understand that. And, and maybe, maybe God's going to grow us in an area where we haven't even, we haven't even thunk about yet. But here's the deal. I didn't tell the band this. Evan, you need to listen. What, what I want you to do, you know, our fall ministries are just around the corner. We're like a month away now from September. Sorry, but, but it's happening. We, we kind of gear our fall ministries to begin in October because that's when everybody's kind of back from vacations and squeezing the last drops out of summer. But it's coming. And, and we like to know where God's calling you to serve what he's calling you to do. And we want every one of you to be serving somewhere, to choose an identifiable area of ministry and serve there. So the band's going to come in just a moment, and uh, we're going to sing a song. And while, while they're singing that song, I want you to, to check 
your top three on this list. And again, if it's if it's other, write it in the other. And uh, if it's at the bottom, it says, I don't know, I need help figuring it out. If that's you, check the box. But as we're singing the song, there's a pen in the chair in front of you. I'd like you to grab a pen, and I'd like you to do this now. What I don't want you to do is bury it like thing three, okay? I don't, I don't want you to bury it somewhere in Second Chronicles and, and walk off and not find it until you're reading Second Chronicles months from now, all right? I want you to do it today. And then back at the Connect table, uh, you can drop it off. And uh, if, I, if I don't, if you don't fill one of these out, if I don't see you, and, and if I see you bury it in your Bible and walk out, I'm going to tackle you. All right? It's that serious. I want you to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, because you invested yourself in what God called you to invest in with the things that he gave you to invest. So I'm going to pray, and we're going to sing, and while, while we're singing, you fill this out. And then when you're ready to join the band in singing, then you stand up and join them. Let's, here's what I want you to do. I want you to put your, if you ask your neighbor if it's okay, but if it's okay to lay your hand on them and, and just, we'll pray together. Okay. This is our way of laying hands on and, and blessing you. Let's, let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that you have you love us. We thank you that you have a plan and a purpose for each of our lives, that you have entrusted to us uh, gifts and skills and other resources, time to, to accomplish the things that you have designed for us to do. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to do them, to be good and faithful servants, investing what you've given to us for the sake of your kingdom. And, uh, and so we, we bless each other, and we release each other to your plan and your call for their lives. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.